I know you're all looking at me and we're starting to hush even though it's not 10 after 10, but shall we start? I'm going to open with a word of prayer and then we'll get started with looking at dystopian fiction and film. And you can ask me throughout, but at the end, especially all sorts of questions about Deborah, why in the world are you doing a class on this? So think about your questions now. So let's pray. Oh, dear Lord God, we thank you for the world around us, and we ask, would you teach us to view our culture and our world with your eyes? Give us the right questions to ask, and then reveal to us your answers. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So I always, whenever I show films in a Sunday school class, I feel the need to start out with a disclaimer. So here's my disclaimer. First off, I will be showing clips from some films that are rated R, and that does not necessarily mean that I advocate seeing those films. And I say this especially for the parents in the room who are here with their teen children. Definitely check, I don't know if you know about IMDB as a resource, but it's got a great parents viewing guide on it where you can find out every incident of anything that's in the film that might be offensive or that you might need to have a discussion with your child about. So I'm going to say that in advance. If it's R, I don't necessarily advocate viewing it for children um, or, you know, until you're of age to understand it and understand it critically. Um, so that's my first disclaimer. And then my second disclaimer is that in preparation for this class, I thought, well, I better read one of the classics that I never had to read in high school. And there's a reason why my high school didn't make us read 1984 by George Orwell, and I am grateful for it. Let me tell you, on the other side, it is a horrible book, and, and it's meant to be horrible. It's meant to make you despair to the uttermost. Um, so don't go out and read it. Ask someone who's read it, and they'll tell you the cliff notes, and you'll be glad for that. So, so those are my two disclaimers. So first off, well, what is dystopia? You might ask that. And in order to answer that question, you can watch this. This is a trailer. In the not too distant future, our DNA determine everything about us. A minute drop of blood, saliva, or a single hair determines where you can work, who you should marry, what you're capable of achieving. In a society where success is determined by science, divided by the standards of perfection. One man's only chance, and you expect to pull this off, is to hide his own identity. This is the last day that you're going to be you, and I'm going to be by borrowing someone else's. Congratulations. We're glad to hear you. Do you think you're doing what you're doing, you're doing, who you are, what you are? I'd feel like to go to the false defense, play somebody else's hand. We'll come back, they should have plastered up all over the place. They'll recognize me. They'll recognize me. They don't recognize you. They won't believe 
that one of their elite can accept them all this time. They are going to sign me. What in a place where any cell from any part of your body can be traded? How do you hide? Or can we all shed 500 million cells a day? It's not quite as loud as at Carmica, or not quite the same viewing experience, but maybe that's a good thing when it comes to the sound. Did you hear the echo in that trailer for the late 90s film Gattaca? Did you hear the echo of the voiceover that we hear repeatedly, all the time, in fact, on trailers? One of my favorite parts of going to the movies is getting, the, getting there early enough to sit through all of the trailers and getting to see there are standard formulas and when you start to examine them, you see them a little more clearly, and then they're sort of alarming at the same time. So with this trailer, did you hear that in a place where he had like the movie phone voice too, the, the voiceover over the, the visuals? Um, how many times have you heard in a trailer, in a world, in the not-too-distant future, dot, 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 and then whatever else is happening next? That very often is the standard formula for introducing a dystopia. So in a dystopia, dystopia is one step beyond where our society is today. So it's somehow plausible, and yet it's futuristic, very often after an apocalypse. So it's a post-apocalyptic vision of the future, almost as if there's a time traveler going back in time to talk to us about what the future could be like if things don't change around us. And so um, one of the hallmark characteristics of dystopia is that it shows a world, in a world, where a world where all is not right, where something is in fact horribly wrong. And isn't that true that this is actually our world in a sense as well? Because as St. Paul says, that all creation groans. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Those gr the groaning of all creation is a great way of describing the evil in the world around us, the evil that we see every day. Uh, the, one of the reasons why I have a hard time watching the news. I don't know about you, but it, it seems like it's the same story repeated over and over again, and it can be depressing and discouraging. The world is a broken and fallen place. The world will never be the same following what happens in the Garden of Eden in Genesis, and nor will humanity be the same either. And we'll look at that some more. But so all creation groans, and in dystopia, that groaning is highlighted. The evil is palpably felt. 
And this kind of pessimism is not to make us depressed, although we could come away with it feeling depressed, as with 1984, which is why I don't read it. But um, rather, this extreme pessimism is meant to be an antidote to unbridled optimism in the ability of mankind, in our human ability. It's to cause this pessimism is hopefully there to cause the pendulum to swing from one wild extreme to the other, in the hopes that it will then eventually land on a healthy and self-aware grasp of reality, both the reality of the world and society around us and the reality within us as well. So it gets worse before it gets better, and then it settles down on reality rather than being in the wild swing of optimism, unbridled optimism, in, an, uh, in a, um, a hope where the hope is placed in something that cannot ultimately save, very usually, human nature. In, um, in utopias, there's this sense of can do, this sense of we'll get there by our own indomitable spirit. And that's where um, this last line of... Um, <coughs> yeah, that'd be great. This last line of Gattaca shows that Gattaca ends up still having a utopian, optimistic understanding of, um, of humanity and of the human spirit. And that's one of those reasons why I actually don't like Gattaca that much, but it's very entertaining. It's one of those entertaining, hopeful, um, ut uh, dystopias, even if the hope is misguided and misplaced. And so now I'm going to show you another one that will help you understand um, a little bit more about dystopia. This is another of my favorite dystopias, but this one, and it's partly because the screenplay and the novel that it's based on are written by a Christian woman by the name of P.D. James, who's a wonderful British, British mystery novel writer. I love her books um, because her worldview is Christian, even if she doesn't have specific Christian references. And so Children of Men, this is the opening scene from Children of Men, and keep your eyes open for some of the characteristics of a dystopian world, a futuristic world. The world was stunned today by the death of Diego Ricardo, the youngest person on the planet. Baby Diego was stabbed outside a bar of... Sorry.
sorry. But I wanted you to experience some of the surprising horror that's very often present in dystopias. The unexpected happens, and it's terrifying on one level. Terrifying in this sense um, in which you totally don't expect it. So I meant to prepare you, but I'm sorry if you were super shocked by that. Um, one thing else, um, did you notice anything else about that? What was that world like? If, if the tagline for the trailer had been, in a world where, what would the next line have been? In a world where? No one cares. No one cares? In a world where, who is the youngest human being in the world? Baby Diego, right? Did you see the timeline of his life, the dates? In a world where the youngest person is 18 years old, they have not had any babies in that world for 18 years. And so that's the whole premise of this story. It's this post-apocalyptic setting in which infertility is totally widespread. And so P.D. James, the writer, brings into this dark world a ray of hope. And this is one of the reasons why it's one of the best dystopias, because she is so um, deeply characterized by the Christian story. The ray of hope in the end of judgment comes in the form of a long-expected baby born to a young girl. Sound familiar? But this one is violent, and so I don't recommend it for children. Sorry. Um, so to keep going on, if this is a dystopia, if dis is a prefix as defined by Merriam-Webster as being abnormal, difficult, impaired, and bad, and it is the opposite of a utopia. If you remember, the first utopian novel is Thomas More's Utopia, written in 1516, and he gives an idealistic vision based on optimism about human nature. And so I wanted to try to find some utopian films to show you clips today. And do you know what? I couldn't find any. And so then I thought, well, where do we have anything remotely approaching utopian films? And I remembered, well, in our television commercials. I'm not endorsing these products. You treat every minute. Chance to do something. So you're always moving, constantly searching for the next opportunity to make the most of what life has to offer. The time is valuable, so you reach for something better. Fewer calories, fewer carbs, more experience. Nicolo Vulture, the superior might be. Isn't that a utopia if you've ever seen one? That optimism about what the world could be like, or no, in fact, what the world is like, so long as you buy this product. It holds out this promised hope of a better future based on human action, human effort. All it takes, by Michelob Ultra. Okay, so you ready for the next one? This one I really appreciate because it also provides that vista of the future in a very tangible way.
unpopular opinion, driving a Bentley will not make your life perfect. I hate to tell you. So we see that utopia is the opposite of dystopia. We see utopia painted for us in TV commercials. And then um, there are also, prior to the 19th century and prior especially to um, World War I, there were tons, hundreds of utopian novels put forward and then hundreds more in the 20th century. But you know what? Dystopian novels and the genre of dystopia really only first appeared following World War I when that unbridled optimism in human ability, human advancement, human nature was dashed to pieces by, um, by the devastation of the war. And so in those early, um, in, the, in the first half of the 20th century, you see the dystopian classics like 1984 and A Brave New World by Aldous Huxley. You see also then later on the fiction of Anne Rand, Kurt Vonnegut, Margaret Atwood, to name a few authors among countless others. And why am I talking about all this? Well, there is a phenomenon um, of recently having this genre be transplanted into the young adult genre. So for 20 years, since the publishing of The Giver, which is the last book that I'll look at in the series, and that will be at the end of July, The Giver is a book written for young, um, basically tweens, uh, the reading level is, lo is um, easier than The Hunger Games or than Divergent, which are the other two that I'll be looking at. But Lois Lowry sets forth um, the, the template and really the characteristics of dystopia that these other authors that we're more familiar with build upon. So why is it, this is one of my questions, and this is one of the reasons why I wanted to make sure that the youth were invited to this class. I want us to look at what is it within me that is drawn to this kind of fiction and film, and why, and what's good about that, and how can I learn from it in light of the Christian story. So finally, if we were to just uh, define dystopia, we would say, I would call dystopia is a futuristic, controlled, and controlling society walled off, but just barely, from chaos. Um, any questions about that before I start to look at some of the other specific characteristics of dystopia? Yes, please, sir. Uh, <clears throat> well, I think Orwell took us up to the point of being very impersonal. Mm -hmm. Big brothers watching you, you know. Yes. All these other things that man had no freedom anymore. Right. You just had to react. Yes. And I think the one that takes it farther than this, I can't remember his name, that wrote uh, Fifty Shot. I don't know that one. Elvin Toffler. What was his name? Elvin Toffler. Elvin Thompson. Elvin Toffler. Toffler. Oh, oh, yeah, Toffler, yeah. And where does he go? Well, he goes over, he says, he kind of defines it, why this is happening. He said, we live in an impersonal world, mm -hmm. and we're bound to our machines. Mm -hmm. We don't know what's going on with the neighbor next door like we did in the 30s when I grew up, in the 40s. You know, everybody's... <coughs> I would agree, and how much more is it accelerated by these? Absolutely. Everybody has their own personal screen, and we don't actually personally engage with, with each other. Well, anyway, he says uh, that uh, uh, in this world, a good man is doomed. 
It is very frightening. And one of the things, too, is he is critiquing an element of culture today, that fracturing, the individualization, um, the, the, the isolation that we have from each other as individuals. And that's something that other dystopias, you're right, bring out and highlight. 1984, too, was um, basically a critique, something was a critique of the left, something it was a critique of the right. Basically, George Orwell was critiquing any kind of group think. Have you heard that phrase before? I think he coined it, group think and double speak and double think, which is this idea that you can wholeheartedly and fanatically support your group or your party's views, even though there will be logical contradictions. You can push the logical contradictions to the side of your brain and focus on that um, unbridled enthusiasm without question and without thought. Um, so thank you for that. That was wonderful. Well, we'll have some time for some more questions in just a little bit. Did you? Well, that could explain you know, the Nazi regime. Exactly. There is, and that's exactly one of the characteristics that you find almost all throughout, that control in society, a controlled structure where things are determined by a central state or sometimes in some dystopias by a corporation. And that, um, that kind of control can trickle down. You see it in uh, mind control, as in 1984, Big Brother is watching you. And in 1984, they had, um, he had a precursor to television in every single room. And so each member of the party was not only um, subjected 24-7 to the voice on the telescreen, um, and even to the images on the telescreen, but it not only um, received, it also transmitted. And so someone on the other side of the telescreen could hear you and even see you at all times and know what you were up to. And that was a part of the thought police, again, a term that we're familiar with that Orwell coined, the thought police that tried to control not only outward actions, but also the thoughts of the mind. It's pretty scary, isn't it? So another thing that you see in dystopias are a reversal of current values at times. Up is down and down is up. And I'm going to show you a more comedic example of this just to lighten the mood a little bit since it can get so depressing. <coughs> this is from Woody Allen's 1973 film Sleeper. And he, um, the premise is that he was cryogenically frozen for 200 years, and he then wakes up to find that the world is a very different place. Fully recovered, except for a few minor things. Has he asked for anything special? Yes, one for breakfast. Uh, he requested something called wheat germ, organic honey, and tiger's milk. Oh, yes, those are the charm substances that some years ago were thought to contain life preserving properties. You mean there was no deep fat? No steak, or cream pies, or hot fudge. Those are thought to be unhealthy. Precisely the opposite of what we now know to be true. Well, he uh, wants to know where he is, and what's going on. I think it's time to come.
I got beside the oven on my feet in five days. It was off by 199 years. I know it's hard, Miles, but try to think of this experience as a miracle of science. To me, a miracle of science is I go into the hospital for a minor operation, I come out the next day, my rent isn't 2,000 months overdue. <laughs> he goes on, there are jokes abound, a la Woody Allen, of course. Um, but you can see that there's that reversal of ideals and reversal of norms. Up is down and down is up. We can eat red meat, hot fudge, cream pies, they're healthy for you. And in the remainder of this scene, they notice that he's getting very agitated and they say it's time to give him a tranquilizer. And of course they hold to him a cigarette and say, no, it's good for you. So again, the idea persists. What we know now has been reversed in this hypothetical future. There's also another factor in, these, in, these, in the fiction and in the film. You see it especially in 1984. There's this disturbing uh, lack of memory about the past, as though the past has been erased. And the subtle implication is that if we forget our past, we will forget who we are, and our future will be irrevocably altered. And here's another more whimsical version of this same truth. dystopias tell us. Dystopias, uh, dystopias are essentially ideological. As you might have noticed, if you've seen All of Wally, how many of you have seen All of Wally, which that clip was taken from? It is not my favorite Pixar film. I am the first to say it. And why? Because it's so preachy. It is so preachy that I feel like it's not even as good a dystopia. The best dystopias get in there, and rather than feeling judged, you feel um, a sense of godly sorrow and a desire to make a motivated change. Um, and so, in a sense, for all of these different kinds of dystopias, one of the common factors is that they act like a prophetic word calling for corporate repentance. They are meant to create within us a godly sorrow while we watch them that leads to repentance, much like Scrooge in Dickens' uh, Christmas Carol. I saw a really good version of this 
uh, one of the theaters locally. It was a bluegrass Christmas carol, which was very entertaining. So with the old familiar story, then they were doing lots of um, Appalachia singing. But within that, remember the third ghost to appear to Scrooge, the ghost of Christmas yet to come. And do you remember that when the ghost of Christmas yet to come shows him what the future will be unless he turns and repents, he is terrified and he is motivated, that fear-based motivation of change, um, which is something that we see in scripture. We see it especially in the story, um, one of the stories that I was reading recently from 2 Kings 22, that the end of the divided kingdom, Israel and Judah, the northern kingdom has already gone into exile. And there, what does King Josiah do? King Josiah is a good king, and he goes to repair the temple. And what happens when he repairs the temple? But they find the book of the law. They find the past that they had forgotten. They find what they were supposed to be doing. They found their identity. And so when the king heard the, book, the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest and Ahikam the son of Shaphan and Akbor son of Micaiah and Shaphan the secretary and said, Go, inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that have been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that was written concerning us. So they go as they're bidden. They go to the prophetess Huldah. And Huldah then says to them, she says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Tell the man, King Josiah, who sent you to me. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants because they have forgot, forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all the work of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be kindled against this place and it will not be quenched. But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus shall you say to him, because your heart was penitent and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, and you have torn your clothes and wept before me. I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Grace is offered to those who are humble and of a contrite spirit. And you see that with King Josiah. He repents. He is stricken by what he hears and by what he sees, and he leads the whole nation in a change. It is as though the curses, which he has probably just heard, read from Deuteronomy 28, strike fear into his heart. We see this also in other Old Testament prophets. One of the great examples is Jonah. Remember Jonah in the whale? Well, some of the best parts of Jonah are his stubborn humanity. At the very beginning, the Lord says, Go and preach to Nineveh, the enemy of Israel. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. And what does Jonah do? He flees to the opposite end of the known world to avoid doing this prophetic act, to avoid preaching. And so then 
what happens, but he's um, captured, he's in the ocean, he's swallowed up by the fish, and finally he says, okay, Lord, I will go and preach finally. And when he does preach, he says to them, he goes out into Nineveh a day's journey, and he calls out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. What happens? People who are not the Lord's people, this people that is not the chosen people, they believe God through the words of Jonah. They call for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And Jonah gets angry in chapter 4. He gets angry. And why does he get angry? He gets angry because the Lord has once again shown his mercy. He prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, Is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. The Lord is merciful. We heard that echoed if you were at the first service. We heard that echoed when we read Psalm 145. It is a refrain throughout the Old Testament, echoing the words that God said to Moses about his own character when he was on Mount Sinai. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and full of steadfast love and mercy. He relents. So that's what these dystopias are doing. They are saying to us corporately, repent, Wake up before it's too late. And so um, one of those wake-up calls usually happens, of course, to the hero. The hero has a wake-up call. The hero in these films is very often on a quest for truth, echoing the words of Pontius Pilate in John 19. What is truth? (coughs) What is real? And in fact, the whole genre asks that question. What is truth and what is real? And the hero in in these dystopian dramas will look for that truth and try to find it. Here is a a modern classic of this search for truth. Reality is outside of that. The main character is attached 
to a machine, and his wake-up call happens when he starts to question what um, he's always been told. And in that questioning, in that search for truth, um, in the dystopian genre, there is generally, uh, in the hero, a strong rebellion against evil. This is one of the great things about dystopia. It shows us that strong distaste for evil, that sense that evil can be corporate. Very often, I don't know about you, but very often we like to say, well, that's all well and good, but that's someone else. Or, um, and we point the blame elsewhere. Or we'll say, you know what? We're all better when we're all together. In community, we can do no wrong. How many of you know that's not true? Um, And it's very painful when you realize that that's not true. There's this sense in which there is a corporate evil, that the human um, stain of sin reaches not just to individuals but beyond that. And so this then is where dystopias diverge because um, some of them will have a despairing ending like 1984, or like... um, like the more famous, you might know, Planet of the Apes has somewhat of a despairing ending. You don't see any hope. There's no escape. And those ones are very unpleasant and not very entertaining. But in the very best dystopias, the hero realizes not only is the evil out there, not only is the evil corporate, but the darkness is within too. The hero realizes in those particular dystopias that he is complicit in uh, the darkness around him. And he too repents instead of remaining with a sense of superiority over the rest of society. There is, um, I'm not going to show you this clip from B from, for Vendetta, just in terms of the interest of time, but there's a wonderful clip from this film where the protagonist has finally gotten the attention of the whole country post-apocalyptic Britain, assuming that the Germans won World War II. And he stares at the screen and he says to, to them, you wonder how this happened? You wonder why is the world the way it is? You know that all is not right? And then it's very powerful. He says, look in the mirror. And it's that looking in the mirror, that self-examination that causes us to say no to repent. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And as Paul goes on to say in Romans 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The problem is not just out there, some faceless unknown, some corporation The problem is in here, in my heart as well. And so the two dystopias that I'll look at in the next two weeks, Hunger Games and Divergent, first Divergent, then Hunger Games, they are good in the sense that they have this individual awareness of sin and individual repentance. Um, And then there are other dystopias as well, and some of the ones we'll be exploring these do have these characteristics as well where there are successful and happy endings. I'm going to spoil Children of Men because it's worth seeing anyway. That baby, long expected, hoped for, the harbinger of a new world, 
something different finally happening. happening. That is one of those successful happy endings. There are others, too, where the hero topples the totalitarian state, but it is only through self-sacrifice. And those ones point us to Jesus Christ and the sacrifice that he has made for us on our behalf. And so there are some distinctly Christian resolutions to a dystopian plot, and we'll be looking at some of those in the coming weeks. So for all that to say, they can, these wonderful, this genre, you have to take it with a grain of salt. You have to understand it's not just about pessimism, but rather pessimism leading to a godly sorrow and repentance that we might finally land in reality and say, no, I'm not perfect. No, the world is not perfect. It's fallen and broken, and the darkness is even within. But there is hope. There is hope for the future, and that hope comes from outside us, from outside this human system, this creation, because there, in the Word made flesh, God, the author of all creation, enters into creation. The writer writes himself into the story. And so for that, we can say thanks be to God.